Hello and welcome to the Center for Rural Health Research Podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Lloyd Cusick. Today we begin a new podcast mini-series all about citizen patients engaging in discussions on rural health issues and health services planning in BC. Now, since the CRHR was founded back in 2004, we've been actively engaging with citizen patients in rural communities to understand their healthcare needs. Now, for those of you who might not know, a citizen patient is a kind of catch-all term that's meant to include all patients, families, caregivers, communities, and anyone who is using healthcare services. In, in other words, it mainly refers to people who are experiencing the healthcare system rather than those who work in the healthcare system or who are, who are delivering the healthcare system. And in other, other words, <laughs> virtually everyone could be thought of as a citizen patient. Involving citizen patients in our research and creating knowledge that is useful to those patients is at the center of all the work that we do. Also, moving the community-informed insights we gather through to policymakers in order to help them make better informed decisions is a critical component of how we aim to support meaningful health services improvement. So, to help us unpack what all that means and to kick off our new series, Exploring Citizen Patient Engagement, we're joined by two members of the Rural Evidence Review team from right here at the Center for Rural Health Research. The principal investigator of the Rural Evidence Review Project and the co-director of the center, Dr. Jude Cornelson, and the manager of the Rural Evidence Review Project, Christine Carthew. Welcome to the both of you. So Jude, I wonder if you can get us started by telling us about why engaging with citizen patients is so important to the work that you do. Yeah, thanks, Nick. So I'll just uh, go back in time a little bit to 2004 when the center started. And our first primary research project was actually um, rural women's experiences of maternity care. Um, And this was in a situation of incredible downsizing across the province and the reduction in maternity services. And I was struck by uh, wondering what the experience of women would be if they were told, as in many instances, that all of a sudden they couldn't deliver in their home community. So we sought to understand that experience. And we learned from the wisdom of women and families and in some instances, whole communities and band councils and elders and all sorts of key stakeholders, people who had a, a real vested interest in this, what the experience was like. And that that project and that work was instrumental in guiding us to all the successive um, research studies we took on because it grounded us in the experience of the most important people in this equation, which are the users of healthcare. Why is that patient perspective so important? So when we understood the experience through, through the lens of, or through the user's eyes, it was very easy to start asking questions particularly around health service improvement and quality improvement, um, keeping in mind that the improvements we want to make are, again, benefiting the users of the healthcare system. So the it was almost by chance that that's how we started out, but it, it was um, very foundational to all the other work we did where we uh, generated hypotheses from what the citizen patient and communities were telling us. So... I've been a student of policy, and I love hearing all about the policy context of things. And I know also that you've been extensively involved in policy in your career. I wonder if you could help me and our listeners understand a little bit more about the policy background in Canada when it comes to patient engagement in healthcare. 
So in a Canadian context, this went back um, to something we refer to as the EP report. And it was basically a report that the Honourable Jake Epp wrote, where he surveyed the implementation challenges that we had in healthcare in Canada. Um, and he, in his wisdom, noted that Patients with informed voices have an incredibly important role to play in health system planning and in healthcare delivery. But to do this, of course, we needed to create um, a strategic mechanism where patients could feel empowered and properly oriented to take on that role. So after that, the Health Council of Canada came up with um, strategy for patient-oriented research. And that provided the national context um, and the national commitment, the federal commitment to including patients in healthcare and healthcare planning. If we put the spotlight on British Columbia, soon after that, British Columbia, the Ministry of Health, of course, released um, BC's New Era Vision for Health. And in that, in 2001, in that document, actually, they started talking about ongoing local community Input and how important that was in the context of regionalized health services. But if we fast forward to 2007, I think one of the most primary and fundamental documents was actually the Ministry of Health Primary Healthcare Charter. And in this charter, the Ministry of Health articulated very clearly both the policy and the philosophy of patients as partners in healthcare and healthcare planning, which provided the template for success of um, ministries and governments to build on. So for example, if we fast forward to 2014, the Liberal government released setting priorities for the BC health system. And in that document, um, they talked about the importance of patient care and how it will be the foundational driver in planning and implementing strategic actions in, in the healthcare strategy. Um, I think if we if we go even further a year later, the probably one of the most important documents was the BC patient-centered framework. The province, in their wisdom, created a, a patient-centered framework that invited patients, families, and caregivers to participate in healthcare quality improvements and also redesign. So this took it from not being participating actively in their own healthcare, but in the design of healthcare across the province. This was really significant. And I think British Columbia has the building blocks um, to really realize the potential of patient, patient-oriented and patient-derived healthcare planning, which is which is very progressive. So clearly to have that patient-derived healthcare planning you're talking about, there need to be patients who are willing and able to actively participate in that process. Um, Are there certain factors that make it easier or harder for patients to participate? If we go back to an earlier document from the Center for Disease Control in 1997, they, they articulated a key enabler. And a key enabler of patient participation and community participation in healthcare, as they put it, was the importance of healthcare planners becoming knowledgeable about communities' culture, about their economic conditions, social networks, political and power structures, uh, norms and values, demographic trends and history, all of those things. Once we have a, a clear understanding of that, we can really help actualize meaningful patient discourse. 
So out of that trend and out of that British Columbia political history and the larger federal history of Canada um, came actually the Rural Evidence Review. So the Rural Evidence Review, which is an initiative between the Center for Rural Health Research and the Rural Coordination Center with funding through um, BC's Strategy for Patient-Oriented Research or BC's Spore Support Unit, it came into being as a way of helping rural communities actualize their healthcare priorities by and empowering them with evidence. So systematic reviews or scoping reviews on their their prioritized healthcare area to help them be better advocates, to come to the table with an understanding of what other jurisdictions are doing. So how does the RER actually start that process? And what does it look like to figure out, you know, which issues to tackle and, and, and what does the RER do once an issue actually emerges? Um, so what we do is we, first of all, ask um, rural citizen patient communities about their most important healthcare priorities. And we've done that several ways um, through a survey. We've done it through interviews. We look at community reports and we consolidate that. And then we we tease out some of the main themes in order to inform international reviews of the evidence. So we look at things like primary healthcare planning, or for example, a health transport or high acuity transport. So all of these things that are important to communities, we look at how they're addressed in other jurisdictions across Canada and internationally. So what happens to these reviews? Uh, where do they go once they're done? We take what we learn and we share it with policy and decision makers and all, also other rural citizen patient communities across BC. And so we've been doing this for about two and a half years. And I think the way to best describe it is uh, the work we do at the center through the Rural Evidence Review is the conduit between grassroots rural community interest, advocacy, and priorities, and a systems level, the strategic kind of health system planning that has to happen. We try to provide the conduit between the two, again, through data and evidence. So it's really a top-down and a down, uh, grassroots, bottom-up healthcare prioritization. So while all of that work and research is going on, how do you make sure that you're continuously sensitive to community priorities and the needs of citizen patients? So I alluded before that we kind of understand the community's priorities through a couple of different ways. And one of them is ongoing and iterative surveys. So we survey the communities about healthcare priorities. We've asked communities across rural BC about their out-of-pocket cost spending. And more recently, we did a survey on rural community response to COVID-19. We also have patient partner panels. So uh, citizen patients from across the province join together quarterly and they'll kind of provide some ground truth for the, uh, for the data and evidence that we produce, but they'll also give us direction and leadership moving in, in, uh, in which way, in which way we should go next. You know, uh, British Columbia is, is a very large province and there are, are so many communities across BC with different priorities. And obviously, even within those communities, different people have different priorities and issues, of course. And that's a large population to keep track of. And, uh, I, you know, I assume a very difficult population to have meaningful ongoing engagement with. And that's in, in and of itself seems like a, a very uh, time consuming, difficult task. Uh, and I wonder if you could share, you know, some of the, the, the strategies, the tools you've used to kind of keep that going, uh, to gain momentum, because I understand you have a tremendous amount of momentum now, but surely that must have taken a lot of effort to get going. 
Yeah. So one of our key priorities in our primary research is making sure we establish longitudinal engagement with rural communities across BC. So um, it's kind of the antithesis of parachute research where you go in, get data and go out. We try and develop relationships and we make a commitment to go back over time uh, to really understand the evolution of the healthcare priorities or health services or a healthcare phenomena or challenge that a community is having. And it's really the only way to have that integrated knowledge of a community where meaningful uh, policy recommendations can emanate from. So we do a lot of field work and we spend a lot of time in rural communities. Of course, there's no way we can cover the expanse of geography of BC um, adequately. So we also use other mechanisms, primarily, as I mentioned before, the surveys. So the 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 value of the of any survey is making sure you reach as much people as um, effectively and and um, efficiently as you possibly can. So, I mean, there are a lot of rural communities in BC. How do you know where to start and who to reach out to? So we start with the list of rural subsidiary agreement communities, and it's 196 communities um, that have been identified by the Ministry of Health um, as, as having different levels of rurality. So that's our starting place. We work um, primarily in those communities, but the way we reach out to those communities is very intensive. So we do Facebook page um, contact, and we learned early on from community members themselves that the best way to connect with people in rural communities is through local Facebook pages. Mm -hmm. And being from a rural community myself, I know all the news is on our local exchange, our, our um, community exchange Facebook page. Um, any you know, any notice of anything happening, and, and it's where you get all the scuttlebutt, as it were, of rural communities. So we make sure we post to public-facing Facebook pages. We also engage chambers of commerce because as you could appreciate, the chambers of commerce have a vested interest in making sure there's strong rural health services in their communities because often the backbone of a successful and thriving community and the vibrancy of a community is often related to having uh, local access to healthcare available. So they, they really prioritize that. Um, you know, the other, the other thing we do, of course, is the, uh, um, Recruitment through uh, snowball effect and word of mouth, being in communities, having ongoing projects. We let people know. So we've got this great potential for crossing over different projects we're doing um, and engaging people on the ground. Uh, so we really rely on the folks in the community who might have a really strong interest, for example, in transport, to get the word about the out-of-pocket transport cost survey out. Um, again, coming back to our patient panels, they're instrumental, not only in giving us feedback and iterative advice as we go through, but in spreading the word in their local community. They're often integrated well into policy and decision-making at a municipal level, and they can get the word out. But, you know, you hit up the nail on the head when you said it takes a lot of time and commitment to do that. Okay, so you have this fantastic network. You have the policy mandate. You've been working on it for many years now. What happens to the input you get from the patients that you do engage with? You mentioned that, of course, you know, they help to set the CRHR's research mandate. They help to identify key priorities uh, for their communities and things. But what happens you know, after you've done a review? How do you feed that information back 
into your stakeholders that helps you identify these needs. Because obviously, I mean, as you've mentioned as well, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a circular kind of process. It's not a, a one-way feed. It's conversation, feedback, word and forward. Uh, so I wonder if you can tell us about that process. Yeah, for sure. So we have a three-pronged approach to knowledge translation, which of course is one is centered on communities. So the rural communities that we get the um, you know, survey responses from or the interviews from, um, we we then prioritize by synthesizing and writing up the the findings and creating community facing reports that are in plain language and available and accessible both on our website but we also send them back by email to communities. The second part is um, that's very important is. Um, having policy briefs that are instructive for key stakeholders in healthcare planning, healthcare policy at a regional level or at a provincial level um, to let them uh, in on what we found with our, with our research reviews, our systematic reviews or our primary research in a way that's meaningful and useful for them that suggest policy indications and, and what they're, what they're grounded in. And the third part is making sure that our findings are peer-reviewed through academic literature. So when you write an article and you submit it for publication, it goes through a process that's called peer review, where our peers in academia read it and say, yes, this seems reasonable. Your methods were solid. This seems like reasonable findings. So we have that extra part of validity that comes through for our findings. And all three of those are very important. One is not more important than the other, but they all work together. Right. So that's how you're kind of you know, spreading the word. Um, but how do people, I mean, healthcare decision makers actually use this information in planning or how is it used in policy? Now, that's different. Knowledge translation is different than implementation. And what we're ultimately interested in is how healthcare decision makers, and that could even be at a municipal level, again, at a regional level or at a provincial level or at a federal level, how healthcare decision makers and planners take the data and evidence um, and use it to inform policy. Now, of course, policy is never informed entirely by data and evidence. There's a lot of other very practical things that come into play uh, when, when creating policy, but evidence is part of that. And to make, we want to make sure that the uh, rigorous evidence that we've collected and synthesized gets into the hands of the right people making policy. So we work industriously to um, you know, present at the Ministry of Health, send policy briefs to the health authorities, do as many things um, as we can, including, and probably the most important, um, integrated knowledge translation and implementation, which means we involve as many people as we can in the ministry and health authorities and at municipal government levels in the research process. So they're partners along the way. They can help mold and shape the questions we ask so, so they know it's going to serve their interests, their decision-making needs the best. Um, but then they're also aware of the progress we make. So in involving all those people, which of course is essential, there are also many degrees of freedom. And it sounds like doing research that's meaningfully engaged in that policy process is also not very straightforward or predictable. So the the movement of the primary research or the synthesis into policy is not uh, uh, point A to point B. It's a, it's a difficult one, a circuitous one, and it doesn't happen in a linear way. Sometimes there's leaps where where it's uh, the evidence becomes very useful and sometimes it appears to us anyway to sit dormant for a while. But that doesn't mean we don't ever stop advocating for its use in decision-making. 
So how do you make sure that citizen patient priorities are heard over time and, and not just in the context of, you know, of a one-time survey or to inform the direction of one review only? So those are the findings from the reviews we have done. But there's also what do we do and and how do we have a system that's entrenched that goes beyond both the discrete reviews we do, but also the outreach we do to rural communities and rural citizen patients when we ask what their priorities are? What happens then? Because that's just a snapshot in time. And things change very quickly, as is evidenced over the past couple of months, where our healthcare system has been turned completely upside down due to COVID-19. And we've amassed an incredible number of resources and strategic responses in a very, very short period of time in what I think is an incredibly impressive way. And we've done that out of necessity. So that's just one influence on health system change. There's many others, and it's not usually as drastic or dramatic. But the health system is always changing. So we do the surveys and the reviews, and they're a snapshot in time. But ultimately, what we need to go to, what we need to get to, and what we heard a lot from the rural communities about was having an enduring and ongoing way of uh, cataloging and um, uh, conveying citizen patient voices in rural communities. So in the survey we did, that was some of the open-ended comments where people said, you know, we should go back to the old model of hospital boards or health councils where rural citizen patients would have an ongoing and validated and legitimated voice in healthcare planning. So as we are wont to do, we decided to do a review on that to see what best practices are from around the world, from internationally. We took a lot of evidence and a lot of learnings from Australia, other parts of Canada, New Zealand, and a few other places. And I think it, it, it's really worthwhile to spend a few minutes talking about how other jurisdictions have addressed the question of how to maintain ongoing citizen patient involvement in healthcare planning, what we have learned, because I think it's really instructive and holds a lot of potential for things we can do in BC. That is a great question. So I think we will do just that. We'll spend a couple of minutes. I understand, Christine, um, one of the previous projects you worked on uh, in your role with the Rural Evidence Review, uh, working working with Jude, was to do that, was to kind of look at how other places around the world have kind of grappled with this, this ongoing need to involve patient voices in healthcare services, planning and, and, and just well, health healthcare in general. Tell us what you learned in conducting that review. Um, yeah, so like Jude says, we uh, or said we, the direction of our evidence gathering and, and literature reviews is directed by uh, rural community priorities for healthcare. And time and time again, we we were hearing from from rural communities that they missed these hospital board structures, where in the past they. Uh, had a seat at the table for uh, healthcare decisions at a at a local or regional level, and they felt as though their voice was was being heard and being incorporated into healthcare decision making. And so, as we do, we did a little translation process to take that priority and turn it into a research question. You know, if the province were to reinstate hospital boards or develop some type of uh, mechanism for systematic and, and regular collection and integration of, of patient voice, what would that need to look like to be successful? So that's the question that really guided our, our literature review. You know, one of the major takeaways from this review is that 
patient participation and, and community participation in healthcare decision-making is, is not a new concept, like Jude alluded to. This has been something that has been talked about for decades at, at this point. And so we did come up with quite a bit of, of research and, and other information from Canada, but also other countries uh, around the world talking about this concept and, and what needs to happen for it to be successful. So I think at a, at a high level, what we took away was that there is information or, and there is evidence that suggests that patient and community participation in healthcare planning and decision making can have a number of positive outcomes, uh, including leading to improved decision-making that considers the needs and preferences of end users of healthcare or, or patients. It can also lead to increased public trust and accountability. It can lead to greater inclusivity of, of voices that are perhaps often uh, not heard from in, in healthcare or harder to reach in, in healthcare decision-making. And I think not most importantly, but, but definitely of great importance to healthcare decision-making, it can lead to improved health outcomes. But but there is something that's important to note, and, and that's that the evidence is somewhat mixed. There is research that shows that these positive outcomes are possible, and there's some evidence that shows that these uh, positive outcomes have not occurred. Um, and something that's important to consider or uh, something that this can be attributed to, at least to some extent, is that there are challenges that are inherent to patient and community participation activities and, and barriers to these positive outcomes. And so when embarking on a patient and community engagement or participation process, it's critical to be aware of these challenges and to accommodate these, you know, what could be barriers what were some of the challenges that other jurisdictions came into with regard to involving patients in discussion and decision-making around health services planning? Yeah, so um, there are a handful, and, and I'll, I'll go through them. Some, some I might speak to in greater detail than others. I'll start with objectives for participation. So something that came through very strongly in, in the information and, and research that we looked at was the need to be very clear about what the objectives for participation are. So, so why are patients and communities being engaged or being involved in the activity? whether that's making a decision or, or planning um, some aspect of healthcare and making it very clear to the participants themselves why it is that they're being brought into this activity uh, so that they can understand what their role is is in that activity. And by being clear about objectives, this also allows uh, those who are bringing in the patient and community voice to target patient and community participation activities appropriately. And I'll just say one more thing. This actually has um, implications for evaluation of uh, engagement activities as well, because like I mentioned, there are multiple potential outcomes and objectives for participation. And it's important to be very clear about what these objectives are so that when you're trying to understand whether the participation activity was successful or not, you are understanding what you're evaluating. Another uh, very important consideration for participation activities is to be very clear from the outset how their voices are going to be taken into consideration and how they're going to be incorporated. And this really stems from past experiences by patients and communities of 
taking part in a, a participation activity of some kind and feeling as though the outcome of that activity was already predetermined before they came in and shared their voice. And it leads to feelings of futility and potential distrust. So it's really important to be clear about how their voice is going to be considered. Another key consideration for participation activities is to ensure representativeness. It's important when you're planning an engagement activity to understand whose voice you're trying to hear. Another critical aspect of participation is to provide adequate training and orientation for patients and communities to participate in, in that activity. Um, and this can allow, uh, or this ensures that patients and communities can um, overcome information deficits and uh, it can reduce any knowledge and skill imbalances that might exist between uh, those who work in the healthcare system and those who experience it. And finally, it is absolutely essential that we continue to evaluate our participation activities because like I said, the information that exists is mixed because of these challenges that I've just uh, spoken about. So we need to continue to evaluate these activities so that we can understand what works in our context and and for who. So I've got one, one final question for you. I mean, you've grown a strong patient engagement ecosystem for your research here in BC. And you've also looked around the world at how patients are engaged elsewhere. My question is, how do you see the way patients are engaged in healthcare decision-making here in BC evolving in the future? I mean, do you have any thoughts on what needs to happen next to kind of expand and solidify patient engagement moving ahead? Yeah, so I always say that this is um, one of these beautiful opportunities where the stars are aligning. There's a lot of things in the province that are grounded in a commitment, a provincial commitment to citizen patient voices and healthcare planning, but also um, system interventions now like the primary um, healthcare networks and the patient medical homes and the um, community health centers that actually have a mandate to include citizen patient voices within their emerging infrastructure. So this is a perfect time if we're moving forward to start to work out an alignment um, of rural health councils established with, um, you know, primary care networks or uh, community health centers to realize that commitment of patient-centered care and prioritize citizen-patient voices in healthcare planning. I think we have to also be really mindful that we want to make sure that Indigenous community leadership considers the needs of Indigenous-specific rural health councils. And these councils may mirror existing, uh, you know, banned and health council structures, or they may require modifications. Uh, to meet the mandate of citizen patient voices in Indigenous community health planning. We also need to be very clear about an accountability framework um, where accountabilities are clearly articulated with the ultimate uh, relationship of rural health councils being able to reach a provincial level. So the Ministry of Health or the GPSC or, or one of the joint clinical committees and how that happens and how we can you know, evaluate whether or not that's happening well. So an evaluation of accountability, but also an evaluation of the effectiveness of rural health councils and how well they're meeting the mandate of making sure that citizen patient voices are included in healthcare planning. So I think, you know, when you say what's next, I think our aspiration here is to have a BC derived, a homegrown, functional, ongoing, enduring way of including rural citizen patient voices in healthcare planning. So it sounds like we have our work cut out for us. <laughs> 
That's great. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, and gosh, I mean, even in all the things you were just talking about and throughout the whole program, I'm thinking that would make a nice podcast episode, that one too. So we have a lot more content, I think, uh, to cover uh, and lots and lots of brain power to cover it, which is great. Uh, Jude, Christine, thank you so much for you know sharing what you've been working on today and sharing your insights and experience and cultivating this strong community of patient engagement in BC. It's really inspirational to hear about. For our listeners out there, you can find this episode and future episodes on the Center for Rural Health Research website at crhr.med.ubc.ca or just type crhr into Google and we'll pop up. It's a little faster. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify if you search for CRHR Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening and take care.